Give ear to the word of God. Psalm 56. To the choir master according to the dove on far off terebinths, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts against me are for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. As they have waited for my life, for their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept the count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will, I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word today. Heavenly Father, uh, we give you thanks today for your scriptures, that you have revealed yourself and the way of salvation through faith in Christ in them. And uh, we know that even now that we know you, we still cannot understand your word apart from you teaching us. So we ask again that you might work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Build us up in our most holy faith and convert the lost. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of uh, this morning's sermon, uh, sermon, I took it from almost word for word from the uh, the text, is it's in God we trust. He says, in God I trust. I just replaced uh, I with with we. In God we trust. It's printed on our or inscribed on the currency that we use. Those of us who still actually use cash, I know nobody carries cash these days, but if you were to carry cash and you look on it, uh, what does it say? It says, in God we trust. Now, I don't honestly know uh, who or when or why they decided to put that on the currency. I'm hoping that it was supposed to be some kind of a reminder uh, that we are to trust in God and serve God rather than trusting in and trying to serve money. A reminder that Jesus tells us of in Matthew 6.24. What does he say there? You cannot. He doesn't just say don't try. He says you can't. You cannot serve God. Uh, must be a cannon. Uh, that's right. Amen. Give me the cannon. Uh, you cannot serve God and money. Give me a cigarette and a blindfold up here. Um, well, it would be nice if our nation actually conducted itself as if that motto on our currency were her rule. Uh, in God we trust is the theme of this psalm, the psalm of David. As we're going to see, David actually confesses that, uh, that he trusts in God more than once in this short psalm. I've never had a sermon where I had cannon fire behind me. Um, David says he trusts God three times in our psalm, verses 3, 4, and verse 11. And Lord willing, if we don't uh, lose a wall here by a cannon fire, uh, we're going to see three things from this brief psalm. We're going to see first, David's predicament or his problem. Second, we're going to see David's prayer or his plea. And thirdly, we're going to see, and lastly, David's praise. So David's predicament, David's prayer in light of that predicament, and then David's praise for God's uh, redeeming and rescuing him. So first, David's predicament. 
you know, uh, many psalms have uh, a superscription or a title, and many times they don't really tell you a whole lot. Sometimes it'll just say a psalm of David, or like this one does, it gives what we assume is the tune. You know, if you were to look at your hymnal sometime, I know that those of you who, who play music uh, know this well, uh, oftentimes at the bottom right side of the page, or the corner, it'll say the title of the tune. You know, we don't think of things, modern songs, the title is, the tune is the song. So we, you don't often reuse tunes for other songs. Well, in the hymnal, thankfully, many, many songs use the same tune so guys like me can sing them and, and be able to sing them. Well, uh, that, that title of that tune doesn't do us much good. Uh, but this one also includes a, a very brief note about what the circumstances were in David's life when he wrote this psalm. In other words, what was the occasion or the reason for David writing this song? And what does it say there in the title? It says, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So we, we, we know we can look back in Scripture and see what it was that happened to David that led him to write this psalm of confessing his faith in God and God's protection when he was in this predicament. Uh, the account of that of that incident is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's a pretty short account. It's 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. And there it says the following. It says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul. So he's, remember, Saul's trying to kill David. Uh, that's not a, not a metaphorical statement. He's chasing David down, seeking to take his life, and it says, David rose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, said to the king, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much Afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, you've brought a mad dog into my house. What are you thinking? You know, did I, did I request this? Did I tell people I was short on mad men and I could use another one? Uh, I need to see someone drooling on their beard and scratching up the furniture. You could get a six month old black lab if he wants that. Uh, no, no comment. Uh, so David, David's on the run from, from King Saul, who was trying to kill him. And at one point, in that you know, kind of mad dash away from Saul, trying to find safety, he, he really does the unthinkable, doesn't he? And you kind of assume he knew where he was going, but we don't know for sure. Uh, he fled right into Gath. Now, Gath was one of the capital cities of the Philistines. Now, if you know the word, if, when I say Philistine, if you know uh, anything of the Old Testament, you know that's not a good place for him to be. And not only that, but Gath, the scripture says that Gath was the hometown of a very particular Philistine that David had uh, an occasion to fight earlier in, in his life, and that's Goliath. Of all the places David could have, could have gone, to go to Gath uh, might have been the worst choice possible. He went to Gath, the very hometown of the Philistine champion Goliath, whom he had slain when he was a little bit younger. And if you look at verses 8 and 9 of that chapter, uh, right before this part of the, of the text, David actually gets Goliath's sword from the priest at Nob. 
So he, here he, here's David, as if people weren't going to recognize him as it was, shows up to Goliath's hometown, probably carrying this gigantic sword, the only weapon he could find, with him. It's like a neon flashing sign. I guess, guess who's coming to dinner? The guy who killed uh, your, your champion. Well, so what is David doing here? David is somehow, either accidentally or otherwise, jumping out of the proverbial frying pan right into the fire. Now, Saul, you know, you might, maybe David thought, you know, the one place Saul won't look is Gath. He's not going to go marching into enemy territory to find me. Uh, he'll just bring trouble upon himself. Maybe that's what he thought. Um, but that wasn't exactly a safe place for David either. Uh, David, uh, David sought for uh, refuge from Saul, probably in the one place on earth that we know of where there was another king, that's Achish, who wanted David dead just as much as Saul did. Of all the places he picked, he had to pick that that one. And to make it worse, the people there, they seemed to recognize David right away, didn't they? Verse 11 says, The servants of the king, uh, Achish, said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens, his ten thousands. So, Notice here also, it's kind of strange and ironic, they recognized David as the king. Saul didn't recognize David as the king yet, he was trying to kill him. The Philistines of all people realized somehow that David was the rightful king. They called him the king of the land, the king of Israel. And not only that, not only did they suspect that, that this was David, now they didn't have the internet back then, they probably didn't have most wanted posters, and I don't know if they could have possibly recognized his his face, but... They did remember a certain little ditty, a little song that the Israelites used to sing, right? And what was it? That Saul has struck down his thousands and David his what? Ten thousands. Now you might remember if you know your Old Testament, Saul hated David for that song too. So the word, the word that the music of David's fame had gotten around and, you know, think about it. Many of those quote ten thousands were Philistines. Maybe a lot of them were Philistines. Certainly one notable one was a Philistine. And so this was not something, uh, a place for him to find refuge. They, they, that song had uh, apparently made the top 40. And, uh, you know, he had, he had bested and killed their champion, Goliath. And so they, they were telling the king, this might not be somebody you want uh, in your house. Now, um, you could say that David here was not just persona non grata, you know, no, not welcome, please don't come here. But he was kind of, you know, the most wanted. He was probably the public enemy number one in, in, in the Philistine lands. Both Saul and the Philistines hated David because of that song, although for different reasons, right? It made Saul look bad, and it made a lot of them dead. So they both hated him. Now David, at some point, realized his mistake. What does it say? It says, verse 12, David was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. You know, think about, think about David. Think about if he had that sword in his hand, you know, the reminder of who he had killed in battle. David was, was David a coward? No. Far from it. He was no coward. He's the one that when everybody was quivering in their boots or their sandals or whatever it was they wore, when Goliath was mocking them, he showed up probably as a teenager and said, you know, what's the holdup? Why isn't somebody volunteering? If nobody else will do it, here I am. Let's go. This guy's defying the armies of the living God. And he went forward, and, and the Lord gave him victory over Goliath. He, as that song says, he slayed, you know, he, he had, t- had taken down, struck down his ten thousands. Uh, 
He was a mighty warrior as, as, uh, as much as he was a king, and yet David says he, he was afraid. He was much afraid of the king of Gath. Now, you know, this reminds us, I think, of Psalm 56, our text, verse 3, when he says, not if, he says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. David wasn't ashamed to admit that at times he was afraid. Even mighty David, the warrior of the Lord, was afraid at times. And so what did David do when the Philistines, the servants of the king, recognized him? Uh, We already read that verse 13. He pretended to be insane in their hands. He's in their hands. He's he's being held captive now. He's been kind of uh, seized. And so he tries to act crazy. Now, he must have been doing a pretty good job of it because King Achish rebukes his servants for bringing him into their presence, even saying one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture, do I lack madmen that you brought this guy into my presence and brought him even into my house? So here we have David's predicament. I mean, his life is, as funny as that line is, his life is threatened now. If the king, if the king accepts that this is David, what's going to happen to David? He might lose his head with that very same sword that he had gotten from Goliath. And so the next thing we're going to look at is David's prayer. You know, Psalm 56 tells us that David didn't just act crazy. His his escape from the Philistines wasn't just a matter of him acting insane and drooling on himself in the presence of King Achish. What what 1 Samuel doesn't tell us, Psalm 56 does. David prayed. He prayed. You know, there's no, no atheists in foxholes. Well, David, David prayed for deliverance, and that's our second point today for David's prayer. And notice what David attributed his deliverance from the Philistines to. Not to his own ingenuity, not to his own acting skills. You know, he didn't say, you know, I'm really good at acting crazy. I, I, it's my go-to move, and it gets me out of trouble every time, right? He, he attributed his deliverance to the mercy of God. Even if, even if what he did was one of the things God used to get him out of trouble, ultimately what did he say? The only reason I got out of trouble, the only reason my life was spared that day, and I was allowed to go on and eventually claim the throne that God had promised me, was God's, was God's mercy. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 56. He says, Be gracious, the King James says merciful, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me, my enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. He's going to God, he's telling God of his predicament. Not that God doesn't know it. You know, if, if, if prayer was a matter of telling God things God didn't know, then you might as well not pray, but that's not what prayer is, is it? He went and told God of his predicament. He cried out to God for grace and mercy, saying, Be merciful unto me, or gracious, O God, uh, to help him in time of his, his time of need. He complains about an attacker in singular. Maybe that attacker was a subtle reference to Saul as an individual. And then he talks about his enemies. That was probably Saul's soldiers, Saul's accomplices, and now even the Philistines, the king of Gath and his servants. And he describes later on in the psalm, he kind of goes in kind of back and forth throughout the psalm. He talks about his enemies, and then he asks God for mercy and proclaims his trust in him. And he goes back and talks about his enemies again. In verses 5 through 6, he says this about his enemies. He says, All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. So he talks about their threat. He says, All day long or all the day, their threat of his enemies was constant. 
There was no break from it. No matter where he went, no matter how far he ran, any time of the day, the, all day long, he says, they were threatening him. His enemies were violent. You know, a lot of the enemies of the church, at least in our country so far, they're not often violent. Some places they still are. But David's enemies were violent. They were seeking his life literally. And all, not only that, but his enemies seemed to be almost everywhere. And so where did David turn when there was no place to turn? I mean, David ran out of options pretty much here, didn't he? He, he found himself in Gath with no place else to go. When there was no place to turn, he turned to God. He turned to his God, to use the terms we've talked about in the service so far this morning. And notice that David was not too ashamed again to admit that he was afraid. The one who had slain Goliath, the one who had struck down 10,000, admitted his fear and said, when I am afraid, not if, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And so I think we should take from that, you and I, we, we aren't Davids, we aren't mighty warriors, we aren't the king, we're not running, at least for now, uh, depending how this show behind me goes for our lives. Um, but, you know, fear and faith sometimes go together in the heart of a believer. Even a strong believer. There's nothing shameful uh, uh, for that to be the case. But what, but what do you do with it? What does it cause you to do? That's the key. What did it cause David to do? It caused David to turn back to God in prayer, to cry out to his God for, for deliverance. Fear should drive the heart of a believer to turn back toward God in faith and prayer rather than to turn away from him in ingratitude and self-reliance. And isn't that what the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament? In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. Did Paul know about people threatening his life? In a lot of ways, similar to David, of course he did. He was in the run for his life many times. He was actually martyred for his faith under Caesar Nero. But he says this, Do not be anxious about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Where was Paul when he wrote Philippians? Here's a quiz. He was in prison. Paul's writing those words from a prison cell to the church in Philippi. When you read Philippians sometime, when you go home today, read Philippians. It's all about the joy uh, that we have in Christ. Paul wrote that from a jail cell. He wrote this, don't be ang- don't worry. Be anxious about nothing but pray. And God will guard, guard. You know, he's being guarded in, in a jail cell. He says, guess what? God's going to guard you. God's going to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Imagine saying that from those circumstances. When we look... When you and I look at our enemies, our circumstances, our afflictions and trials, they often loom very large in front of us, don't they? And with good reason. You and I, uh, you know, sometimes we like to think that we're, you know, uber competent. You know, we can do all things through, you know, ourselves. We can take care of all things. Uh, we can handle whatever. But, you know, our, our problems, our enemies, our circumstances, our trials are very often much bigger than we are. And they really are too much for us to handle. You know, people often say, God will never give you something too big for you to handle. Of course he does. Why would you ever even need to pray if that were the case? If you didn't need need the Lord. But when you begin once again to look upon God with the eyes of faith and consider his word, as, as David says, his word that he praised, then worldly fear begins to be driven out, isn't it? When you When you look at your problems, your fears, your dangers, your trials, 
they look huge until you look at God. And you think, if I can use this kind of a phrase, how big God is. Prayer does that. Prayer redirects our gaze, our eyes, to God so that we might seek refuge and help in him and see our problems, our trials, even our dangers in proper perspective. You know, twice in this psalm, you might remember that, God, that David repeats almost the same thing word for word. He says in verse 4, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Later on, he says, what can man do to me? Same idea. William Plummer, uh, commentator, writes this of that, of that refrain that David repeats twice. He says, let God's people ever cling to his word and praise it. Uh, talking about verse 4 and verse 10. Its promises and doctrines contain all we need to hold us up in the darkest hours. Let God's people ever cling to his word and praise it. That's what David says here. In God, in God whose word I praise. How do we know God? By his word. How do we know what God, how God, that God is for us? By his word, by his, by his gospel. Trust in God drives out worldly fear. The apostle Paul says pretty much the same thing as this psalm does in Romans chapter 8 verse 31 where he says, what shall we say? What then shall we say to these things? You probably know where I'm going. If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? If God is for, if our God is for us, who can be against us? Now he says, what then shall we say to these things? What things is he talking about? Have you ever asked yourself that? What, what does Paul mean by what, what these things are? Well, basically everything he had said up to that point in Romans 8. Romans 8, 1 through 30, maybe even everything in the whole book of Romans up to that point is what he had in mind. And what's the book about? the great truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation. Paul says, in no uncertain terms, if we think about the great truths of the gospel, as he tells us up in Romans, and in Romans 8 in particular, if we think about them rightly, if we meditate upon them, thinking about those truths should lead you and I to the conclusion that God is what? For you. For us. What things does Paul talk about in Romans 8? I'll, I'll, I'll throw some words around the heat that he talks about right before the, the verses right before 831. He talks about predestination unto salvation. He talks about God's providence. He talks about God's calling. He talks about justification. He even talks about glorification. You have all that in Christ. That's a way of kind of summarizing in, in some ways all the blessings you have in Jesus Christ. Well, if you have all that, it means one thing, if it means anything. It means God is for you. God is for you. And if that is the case, who can be against us? Now, the psalmist David here says pretty much the same thing in verse 9, doesn't he? He says, this I know, what? That God is, two words, for me. God is for me. When David was sitting there held captive by the Philistines, being pointed out to the king, I'm, I'm pretty sure David didn't feel like God was for him in that moment. And yet when he thought about God and thought about his word that he praised, what was his conclusion? In the midst of his trials, he says, you know what? I know one thing, and that one thing is God is for me. God is for, you could preach a whole sermon on that one line. God himself is for little old me. Uh, and if that's the case, what could possibly, what could flesh possibly do to him. What a wonderful confession of faith David makes here about God being for him. So this morning I have to ask, can you confidently say that right along with David? Can you say 
your amen to David's words there and say, God, I know, this I know, God, God is for me. That's what David confesses. If you're in Christ by faith this morning, you can say that. You can say that without any doubt. If you're in Christ by faith this morning, you can say with certainty that God is for you. And again, as Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that doesn't mean that you won't have any problems. That doesn't mean you won't have any enemies. David certainly had enemies. It doesn't mean that no one's going to try to set themselves against Christ's church in this life. The record of the afflictions of God's people at the hands of the wicked, both in the scriptures, even in this psalm, right? Even in 1 Samuel 21, and also in history, tell us uh, otherwise, don't they? We know that people will try to be against us, that they will try to be against God's people. But what David and Paul are both saying is that when that when they say no one can be against us or what can man do to me, it's not that they won't try. It's just that those evil designs of the wicked against God's people in no way can really prosper against us. In the end, in the end, they will have failed to do you any harm. That includes martyrdom. Romans 8, Paul talked about sword, nakedness or danger or sword. Paul literally died by a sword. He was beheaded under Nero in Rome. But what did Paul say to all that? More than conquerors. Can't touch you. What can man possibly do to you? Even if they kill God's people, as wicked as that act is, and God will judge for that, all they do is send you home. Your salvation is untouchable. In fact, Paul himself, in Romans 8, you might remember, gives quite a frightening list of things that believers at times have and still have uh, to endure for the name of Christ. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall what? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Same phrase we found in the, in the psalm. All the day. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That doesn't sound very victorious. Doesn't sound like the victorious Christian life to me, but what does he say? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, even being slaughtered like sheep. Not very uh, self-esteem producing, but what does Paul say about those things? Does he say they'll, does he say they'll never happen? No. Quite the opposite. He says all day long we are killed like sheep. We're slaughtered like sheep. What does Paul say to those things? He says, Romans 8, 37 to 39, he says, No, in all these things, not going around them, not skipping them, not avoiding them, not God giving you the, the lucky parachute to get away from all the troubles, in all these things we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. That's a, that's a shorthand way of, of talking about the cross of Christ. He loved, uh, loved us and gave himself for us. We, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure, here's the reason for it, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing they can do. The one thing your enemies could do if they could would do if they could do it would be to separate you from the love of God in Christ. And what's the one thing they can't do? That. Satan himself cannot touch you that way. 
He is not as strong as your Savior. None can, can grasp us out of his hand. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. None of those things, even death, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if that's the case, the most vicious enemies of God's church can never hope to do you any real lasting harm. No matter what, they throw their worst at the church, and they can't harm you when push comes to shove. It brings to mind, some of you were raised uh, memorizing the Heidelberg Catechism, a wonderful uh, teaching tool and, and, and uh, memory tool of the faith. And question one of the Heidelberg is the one, if you know it at all, this is probably the one that you recall. What is it? What is your only comfort in life and death? They weren't messing around. Your comfort, they could have said, we, we, we would put it down, what makes you happy or what makes you comfortable? It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? No matter what happens from, from birth to the grave, and this is the answer. Your only comfort in life and death is what? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And here it is also. He also watches over me. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. That's Romans 8.28, right before the passage we just looked at. All things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. If you're in Christ... Not a hair can fall from your head apart from this Father's will. Not one. And he watches over you in that way, in such a way that all things, even the worst things that this world throws at you, what does it say? Must, must work together, not just for your good, but for your salvation. And that's what Rome, that's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, your greatest comfort your only comfort, your only real lasting comfort in life or in death is that you don't belong to yourself anymore. But you belong body and soul in life and in death to Jesus Christ, your faithful Savior. And he not only saved you from your sins, he also freed you from the tyranny of the devil, but he watches over you in that way that nothing can come, no harm can come to you, not a hair can fall from your head. Not only that, but you know, in the end, the enemies of God's people, the enemies of, of Christ's church, uh, the only people they really endanger at the end of the day is themselves. The only ones they really end up harming are, are themselves, for they dare to stretch out their hands to harm the very apple of God's eye. Zechariah 2, verses 8 and 9 says this, For thus said the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nation to plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. They touch the apple of God's eye when they touch his church. You can read many scripture passages that would teach this very same thing uh, this this morning. When you think of, of, of Saul on the way to Damascus with papers in hand trying to destroy the church, when Jesus stopped him, what did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? You mess with, we say oftentimes, you mess with me, you mess with my whole family. You mess with my family, you mess with me. Right? You don't realize who you're picking on. 
who you're actually trying to, to persecute. It may not always feel like it, but our Lord, our faithful Savior Christ, always takes notice of our trials and our persecutions and afflictions. doesn't always feel like it, but he does. Verse 8, verse eight. David says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle, or are they not in your book? Our tossings, the word means to shake, as if you're afraid. When you're under trial, your tossings are noticed by God. Our tears are in some way kept, and it doesn't just say kept in a bottle, it says your bottle. Kept it, keep them in your bottle and are numbered in his book. That verse 8 is full of comfort and good news for God's people, and it's also, in a sense, full of warning and terror for the wicked. Why is that? Our God sees, and he keeps count of those who do things to the apple of, of his eye. One day he will right all the wrongs, rewarding his redeemed while judging the wicked and the unrepentant. We, we confessed that this morning in the Apostles' Creed, didn't we? We talked about Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what did we say was going to happen after his ascension? From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. The, our Savior is the judge, and he, will do, he, he is the judge of all the earth who will do right, who will make the wrongs right. Well, the last thing we see in our, our psalm is David's, David's praise. We saw his predicament, his prayer, and now his praise. Here he exclaims his confidence in God. He does that kind of all through the psalm in some way. And he speaks of giving God the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise for that great deliverance. Remember, who, who did he credit his deliverance to? Not his own acting skills, not his own ingenuity, but God's mercy. And so he says in verses 12 to 13, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now, to our ears, probably, when, when he says, I will perform my vows, or I must perform my vows, it, it might sound legalistic to you. It might sound like he's doing some kind of a quid pro quo. You know, we, we might imagine wrongly that David here is somehow... And he kind of bargained with God, you know, the old foxhole prayer, get me out of this, God, and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and live my life for you kind of thing. It's not really what David's doing. It was, you could say it was a foxhole prayer in, in some ways. David's not saying, get me out of this, and then I'll you know, serve you and do whatever, or, or I'll do this, and then you'll get me out. Uh, he wasn't bargaining with God to gain his deliverance from his hand. David is saying that he's going to worship the Lord in gratitude for God's great grace and salvation in his life. Worship is the response. Walking before God in, 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 the, in the light of life is the response. David's grateful response to the Lord, if you look at verses 12 and 13, involves two things, and those two things are not unrelated. Those two things are his worship and his walk. That's the response. That's the response to God's grace in Christ in saving his people, our worship and our walk, and it's the same way it is for us now. That, you know, the Old New Testaments don't teach two different things. The Old Testament doesn't teach some other way of salvation different than what you and I experience in Christ now. That the way of salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, and God's Christ alone. To God's glory alone. It's always been that way. And how do I know that? Look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Every time we're looking at the Psalms, we seem to look in Romans. I don't think that's an accident. Romans 12, 1 to 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. He spent 11 chapters talking about the gospel, and now he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the what? By the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When he says, by the mercies of God, what's he talking about? He's really talking about everything he said in the first 11 chapters. All these grand truths about the gospel of Christ. He says, now, thinking about all that I just told you, about the mercies of God in Christ, his kindness and grace to you, in saving you from sin, sanctifying you, and even assuring you of glory one day, because of that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not the other way around, not present your body as a living sacrifice, and then just maybe if you do enough, God will save you. No, God saved you, now live this way. The mercies of God that are ours only in Christ, uh, they are to be, as David puts it here, our prayer as well as our meditation all the day. It's the mercies of God and faith in the God of all mercy and comfort that will drive out all worldly fear and give us greater cause for presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. You know, when we remember, like David says, that God has, quote, delivered our souls from death and kept our feet from falling, then we will start to learn to give thank offerings to God, the, the sacrifice of praise, and to walk before our God in the light of life. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for psalms like this, that uh, you give us psalms that we can sing not just in happy times, not just in joyful times, but even in times of great trial, and even in times of fear, when we don't know what's going on around us, when we don't understand your ways in this world, in our life, and our enemies, and anxieties, and, and problems, and circumstances threaten us, and we think they threaten to undo us, we thank you that you give us psalms that we can sing, and pray, and meditate upon, and even confess to you, even as David did, that we can worship you even in those times, and that we can, when we are afraid, as David says, we will trust in you as well, Lord, we thank you that if you are for us, who can be against us? What can flesh, what can man do to us if you are for us? And Lord, if we are in Christ, we can say confidently that this we know, this one thing we know, that you, Lord, are our God and are for us in Christ because you sent your Son uh, to, to live and die in our place that we might be reconciled to you and saved from our sins. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts. We are slow to learn, and we ask that you would help us by your Spirit. Work in our hearts to, to think about the mercies of God that you have, have, have lavished upon us in Christ, that we might realize more and more that you are for us, and that because of that, we would call upon you as our God, lift up the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you, to praise you all of our days, and to walk before you in holiness in the light of life. And we do pray, as always, if there's anyone here this morning that does not yet know you, that doesn't have the ability to say that, that God is for me, that you would open their eyes even today, that they might see their sin, their need for Christ, they might look to him and have life in his name, and henceforth be able to go from this place saying, this I know, God is for me, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.